This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. There are passages in Scripture, such as Psalm 110, Hebrews 7, and John chapter 17, that reflect something of the eternal relationship between the persons of the Trinity, and especially between the Father and the Son. In the Reformation, some of our writers began reflecting on these passages and others and drawing inferences from them. In post-Reformation Reformed theology, many of our theologians wrote about the eternal covenant of redemption, or the pactum salutis, between the Father and the Son, and sometimes including the Holy Spirit, in which the Father gave to the Son a people, and He, the Son, agreed to become their substitute and their Savior. That covenant is prior to the covenants of works and grace that we see worked out in Scripture in the covenant with Adam before the fall, the covenant of works, and the covenant with Adam and Noah and Abraham after the fall, or the covenant of grace. In modern reflections on covenant theology, however, the doctrine of the covenant of redemption, or the pactum salutis, has either been neglected or rejected as unbiblical and damaging to the doctrine of the Trinity. John Fesco is academic dean and professor of systematic theology and historical theology at Westminster Seminary, California, and he's been investigating the history of the Reformed doctrine of the eternal covenant of redemption, and he has published two new books on this topic. The first is a work of historical theology, The Covenant of Redemption, Origins, Development, and Reception, and the second is The Trinity and the Covenant of Redemption. Both of these titles are available through... The Bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. This is part one of a two-part episode. Hi, John, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. It's good to be here with you. What is the pactum salutis? What do those Latin terms mean? And then we'll get to this. Why should anybody care about it? And then finally, why is it so unknown? The pactum salutis is typically translated into English as the covenant of redemption. It's also been called the concilium pacis or the council of peace, among some of its other terms. And it's a reference to the eternal intra-Trinitarian covenant. And there are two different formulations, one of the covenant between the Father and the Son to appoint the Son as the covenant mediator, and the other, it's an intra-Trinitarian agreement between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to plan and bring about the redemption of the elect. And as far as to why should anybody care about it, you know, that's the question is, is that, well, the redemption that we have in history has a source. It has a source in God, and that source in God ultimately finds its roots in eternity. So the question is, is why do we have the redemption that we have, and can we trace it back to God? And the answer is, is yes. And so in that sense, we're tracing the tree back to its root. But as you and I are talking about this, we're defining terms, we're using a couple of Latin words and then translating it into English, and I can imagine the listener saying, I've never heard this before. And, you know, here they're talking about something that has to do with my salvation and covenant theology and God, and this is entirely new to me. So, John Fesco, are you making things up? (laughs) Did you invent a new doctrine that you're trying to foist off on us? Or what on earth is going on? Why might the listener be having that experience. 
Yeah, you know, it's an interesting thing that in the 20th and 21st century now that the doctrine of the covenant of redemption has been something that I've heard some people talk about. I've seen it referenced in a few books here and there, but it just simply isn't discussed all of that much in comparison with, say, the late 16th and especially the 17th century, where Reformed theologians regularly talked about the doctrine of the covenant of redemption. You have the covenant of redemption, which is the eternal intra-Trinitarian covenant among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then you have the covenant of works, which is the covenant between God and Adam in the Garden of Eden. And then subsequent to the fall, you have the covenant of grace. And the historic classic understanding of these three covenants are that the covenant of redemption is the anchor and source of the covenant of grace, and that it is what assures us of the foundation of our redemption, that Christ has been appointed as the mediator in this eternal covenant agreement, and that nothing can change that. And so in this sense, it should be hopefully a source of hope for us, but it's certainly nothing new. It's been classically affirmed in covenant theology and Reformed theology, but in the 20th and 21st centuries, it's kind of faded away for a number of reasons. We'll get to some of those reasons, but is it safe to say that you think it's something that should not have faded away or something that we need to get hold of again? Absolutely. I think it's something that we definitely need to retrieve, and we need to become not only familiar with the category again and the doctrine again, but actively employ it in our theology. Do we confess this doctrine, or is this what sometimes theologians call a theologumenon, Mm -hmm. that is, a theological opinion, a formulation, something that's privately held, but not something that is actually confessed formally Mm -hmm. by the churches? Yeah, I mean, there's a a multifold answer to that question. In the one sense, say, for example, in the Three Forms of Unity or in the Westminster Standards, I would say that it's not mere private opinion insofar as— Christ's appointment as mediator is confessed there. So in that sense, we should not and cannot deny that Christ has been appointed as mediator. Moreover, we could also say with those ecclesiastical confessions and catechisms that Christ has been appointed as a covenantal mediator. So in those elements, we have to and should confess them. More formally, when you take, for example, the Sum of Salvation that was written by two Scottish theologians that was appended to the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms by the Scottish Church, there they formally explain the doctrine of the covenant of redemption. So in that sense, the Scottish Church believed that that explanation, at minimum, was harmonious with the standards, if not perhaps drawing out what was implicitly there. But more explicitly, you have it in the Savoy Declaration, which is the Congregational Version of the Westminster Confession of Faith, as well as in the Second London Confession in the 1689 document used among particular Baptists, where they also formally and explicitly confess it. So there, at least among those you know, churches, yes, it's been formally and explicitly affirmed. Whenever we start talking about eternity, about the relationships between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and we start talking about an agreement between two Trinitarian persons, Mm -hmm. almost immediately, you can hear it, you know what I'm going to ask you, almost immediately someone will say, that sounds very speculative. Sure. That you have started with a premise Mm -hmm. that is clearly revealed in Scripture, that is, there are these covenants, there's a covenant of works, at least we would say so, Mm -hmm. many in our tradition have said so, and our confessions say so, and uh, a covenant of grace— 
hard to deny that mm-hmm. since the language is in Scripture that God made a covenant with Noah mm-hmm. and he made or covenants and he made a covenant with Abraham. But when you start to attach that or connect that to eternity, mm-hmm. people start to get nervous. Sure. So is this doctrine speculative, something with which we got carried away? And maybe that's why in the 20th century we lost hold of it and sort of neglected or forgot it. Yeah, I think certainly, as you say, the accusation has been leveled in the past. This is speculative. How can we know what God was doing in eternity past, or in eternity, I should say? I want to even say that that was perhaps my own initial reaction to it when I first started reading about it many, many years ago as a theological neophyte. But on the other hand, if we take into account that the scriptures themselves talk about what God was doing in eternity. Say, for example, in Ephesians, God predestined us before the foundations of the world in Christ, so that there are numerous statements throughout the scriptures that let us know, hey, the triune God is doing something in eternity prior to the creation, so that in the end, this is ultimately not a speculative doctrine, one where we're guessing or we're peering into things for which we have no exegetical warrant, but rather this is a revealed doctrine. And we can, of course, talk about some of those texts where the doctrine is revealed, but at least classically, we can talk about where the tradition has identified those things as appearing in Scripture. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Quickly, and we'll come back to this, what happened to the doctrine? Mm-hmm. Since it was taught in the 17th century mm-hmm. and even confessed, as you say, in, in some documents and attached to the confessions in other documents, why was it in the 20th century, and maybe to a certain degree in the 21st century, we lost hold of it? What happened between the 17th mm-hmm. when we were teaching it, mm-hmm. and it was being received, and it wasn't mm-hmm. hotly controversial mm-hmm. in that period, and yet today you have writers who identify themselves as Reformed who have no trouble saying that it undermines the Trinity, mm-hmm. or it's speculative, or criticizing it in other ways, and just rejecting it. Sure. I think that in the 20th century, and you could make the case that maybe it begins in the late 19th century as well, is that there was a fundamental shift in how Reformed theologians defined classic categories and classic ideas, particularly the term itself of covenant. I think I want to say that from Martin Luther up until certainly Charles Hodge and up until about the 20th century, Reformed theologians, I think, were virtually unanimous in that they defined a covenant as an agreement in its most fundamental level, an agreement with stipulations and or conditions. Now, they would recognize that there were different kinds of covenants in Scripture, that some were more unilateral and that others were a little bit more bilateral. In other words, one was God giving it exclusively, the other is more give and take, so that they recognized some differences there. But in the 20th century, you had a number of theologians redefining what a covenant was. You know, historically speaking, John Murray, for example, professor at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia said that a covenant was not an agreement and that that kind of idea had to be purged from the definition, but rather it was ultimately a sovereign dispensation of saving grace. And if that's the case, well, then that's going to kind of alter the way that we look at covenant. You had others, for example, historically such as Klaus Skilder and Herman Hoeksema redefining covenant so that it's not an agreement, but rather it's the intra-Trinitarian in life. And so they kind of push some of these doctrines off to the side because it no longer fits with how they're redefining covenant. So the big question is too is why 
did Reformed theologians redefine these received categories? And, uh, you know, there may be other explanations that other historians will dig up in the future. At least I hope we can get a better insight into why they did this. But I think that in the 20th century, one of the more earth-shattering fundamental things that occurred was World War One. that I think was devastating event, not only for the world, but even for Christians, that they assumed that things were going well, and then all of a sudden there was this catastrophic disaster where nations engaged in warfare to the point where millions upon millions of people were slaughtered on the battlefields and killed. And I think it made people fundamentally re-examine some of the more commonly held assumptions and think that there was perhaps something problematic with the tradition that they had received. They needed to fix it and that perhaps the tradition had somehow contributed to this global disaster. And certainly that's the case with Karl Barth. But I haven't found specific explicit evidence in other theologians of the period saying this, but it's the question of when you have theologians across many different confessional or theological points of view all engaging the same problems and saying that there's the same problem, then there's usually some sort of bigger historical contextual reason for it. So as best as I can tell, I would want to put my finger on World War I and that massive disaster in that sense. We're talking to John Fesco about two new books that he's just published on the doctrine of the Covenant of Redemption or the Pactum Salutis. John, how in the course of the 17th century, and perhaps a little earlier, was it that going back to the original languages facilitated the development of this doctrine of the Covenant of Redemption? I think that that's one of the most important things to note about this doctrine, is that with the whole question of, is this not speculative, we have to go back and examine the historical sources. And if we note, for example, with Jerome's translation of the Vulgate in Luke twenty-two twenty-nine, where at least most English translations say, and I appoint to you a kingdom as my father appointed to me a kingdom. And that's what more or less how the Latin translation reads. But Theodore Beza, most people have all sorts of negative associations about him because of some really bad historical work in the 20th century, that everything that went wrong with the Reformed tradition is Beza's fault. But what a lot of people don't realize is that Beza was a textual critic. He looked and studied the Greek New Testament very carefully and very closely. And in fact, scholars sometimes to this day still use the version of the New Testament that he assembled in the 16th century, Codex Beza. Nevertheless, as he was looking at it, he looked at Luke twenty-two twenty-nine, and he noticed that the Greek term there wasn't the term for a point, but rather it was the Greek word diatithemi, which is to covenant. And so he said, no, no, it's not that Christ was appointed to a kingdom, but rather he says, I covenant to you a kingdom as my father covenanted to me a kingdom. So that one exegetical observation, I think, rippled through the Reformed tradition in the 16th and then in the 17th century as theologians began to ask and realign those various texts where they recognized that Christ was appointed as the mediator, as the redeemer, and recognizing it along with Luke 22, 29, among other passages that, wait a minute, this isn't just a bare appointment, but rather it's a covenantal appointment that the Father and the Son covenanted together to execute the plan of redemption and to redeem the elect. 
So the category of a covenant between the Father and the Son wasn't something that was imagined in the fevered brain Mm -hmm. of people who were just sort of sitting around speculating, well, what about this? It actually grew out of the handling and reading and interpretation of Scripture and even textual criticism. Yes. Right. Absolutely. I think to another point is that, you know, what I found in this is that there's hardly two theologians that will take the same exegetical route on this doctrine. They may engage similar groupings of texts together, but they often go off in slightly different directions, which shows that you could pull out any one so-called proof text for this doctrine, and the doctrine would still remain intact. It's still there. So like, for example, they look at Psalm 2-7, I will tell of the decree, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And you have one example in Patrick Gillespie, 17th century Scottish covenant theologian, who said the term here for decree is a synonym for covenant, and he brings together the exegetical information to prove that point, and he even brings in things like the Talmud to say, look how these Jewish scholars also translated it as covenant in this manner. And what I found absolutely fascinating is that here was the 17th century theologian talking about this, and then I read this essay by Gerhard von Rod, German, Lutheran, critical, biblical scholar, Old Testament scholar, and he came to the same exact conclusion conclusions that the term decree here is synonymous with the term covenant. So then the question is, is when the psalmist says, I will tell of the covenant, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Who ultimately is the psalmist referring to? I think rightly so, Reformed theologians said, well, this is ultimately a reference to Jesus, to the Messiah. And so here's yet another text that speaks of God covenanting with the son to appoint him as the Messiah, as the mediator. What does God's Word teach about the person and work of the Holy Spirit? Did He first appear at Pentecost? Who is He and what is He doing now? In 381, the Church confessed that God the Spirit is Lord and Giver of life, who is properly worshipped and glorified, who inspired God's inerrant Word. Join the faculty for our annual conference, January 15 and 16, 2016. The Holy Spirit, Lord and Giver of life featuring W. Robert Godfrey, Mike Horton, and others as we consider the person and work of the Spirit in our salvation and the Christian life. For more information, go to wscal.edu slash conference2016 or call 888-480-8474. That's Friday and Saturday, January 15 and 16 on the campus of Westminster Seminary, California. wscal.edu slash conference2016, 888-480-8474. You point to a 1638 speech mm-hmm. by David Dixon. Why is this speech so important, and why was Dixon so interested in the covenant of redemption? You know, that, I think, Dixon's 1638 speech at the Scottish General Assembly there for the Scottish Church was important because it really was, at least as far as I've been able to find and other research has identified, it's kind of the first official formal explanation of the doctrine. And Dixon said, we have to recognize that A lot of the problems concerning Arminianism in terms of who does what in redemption and on what basis are we saved, he said a lot of this would be cleared up if we simply took into account the covenant of redemption, the covenant between the Father and the Son, and in terms of his appointment as covenant mediator. This would, I think he says, solve a lot of the problems because when Christ is appointed as covenant mediator, he's also appointed as surety. 
you know, or as sponsio uh, or sponsor would be the Latin term. And it's the idea that he provides the sole legal basis for meeting all of the demands and requirements of the covenant. And so if this is the case, then that means that there's no place for human obedience or human good works factoring in as the legal basis for our salvation. And so Dixon pointed all of these things out. And what's fascinating about this is it's 1638. He says that it's our doctrine. He talks about it. There's no record of anybody objecting to it. And he just explains the various chief points of the doctrine and brings it to bear primarily against Arminian theology of the day. You used an important word that is actually found at least a few times in Scripture, and that is the word surety. Mm -hmm. Explain that concept for us. I mean, I think the listener knows what it is, but it's not a term that we probably use all the time, even though we're familiar with the idea. Yeah, you know, the most famous place that it comes up is in Hebrews uh, 7.22, that he has made him, or Christ, surety or guarantor is another way of translating, of a better covenant. And it's this idea that in a covenant, in an agreement, it's an agreement with conditions and stipulations, if you do A, I will do B. You know, that's the most basic form of the agreement. And in this case, it's God saying, I will redeem you if the legal obligations are met. And Christ steps forward and says, I will meet those obligations. I will guarantee hence guarantor, that the legal demands will be met. In other words, I will suffer the penalty of the law. I will offer my obedience in fulfillment of the law to ensure that the elect receive the blessings of redemption. So it's on behalf of other people. Mm -hmm. He's not doing it for himself. Right. He is acting as a surety mm -hmm. or a guarantor right. for a people Correct. whom the Father knew and loved, I think we would agree, in Christ mm -hmm. from all eternity, right. whom he gives to the Son, Correct. and the Son says, I will act on their behalf. Right, absolutely. In this sense, I think I want to distinguish it from, you know, sometimes we might say, I'm going to sign a loan, Dad, will you co-sign with me? Will you act as a guarantee for the loan that if I fail to do it, that you'll, you know, make the payments, etc.? So Christ is not simply a co-signer, but rather he is the only signatory, if you will, upon the agreement that says, I will completely fulfill all of the legal obligations, both in terms of the obedience required as well as the penalty that is required for breaking of the agreement. And we're going to come back to the biblical foundations of this in part two of this episode. But I just wanted to get that concept clear so the listener knows what we're discussing. Mm -hmm. Now, how did the later 17th century theologians, and I'm thinking, for example, of Herman Witsius mm -hmm. or Francis Turretin, mm -hmm. elaborate on this doctrine of the Pactum Salutis or the Covenant of Redemption? Yeah, they typically unpacked it in a number of places, but usually in terms of explaining the work of the mediator and how Christ was appointed as covenant surety, as the mediator, as the Messiah. And they talk about it in terms of what are the things that God required of the Son and what are the things that the Father himself promised that he would give to the Son. So that the Son, in effect, says, yes, I'll be the surety, I'll offer my obedience, I will suffer on behalf of the elect and secure their redemption. And the Father says, okay, if you do this, then I will give you a name that is above every name. I will give to you this people to be your bride, and I will give you a kingdom. And, you know, in some of the simplest terms we see this is in many of the dialogues that appear in John's Gospel, and these are some of the texts that uh, Vitzius and Turretin and others appeal to when Jesus is speaking to the Father, praying to the Father, 
Father. He says, Father, I've completed the work that you have given me to do. So very clearly you have Jesus testifying to the fact that the Father has given him a work to do and that Jesus has accomplished it. You see this in terms of, say, Philippians 2, 5 and following, where Paul says that Christ was obedient to the point of death, death on a cross, Therefore, he's been given the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So in other words, it's because of that obedience there, and then you have the therefore, or the inferential particle that says because of that obedience, therefore he receives this exalted place, this uh, high and honored place, this kingdom, and he rules. You know, so as I said before, Reformed theologians will appeal to numerous texts in this respect, but it's the uh, overall idea that they explain what the nature of the work is, who gave it to Christ to do, and what specifically did Christ say that he would do. And by the end of the 17th century then, this doctrine of the covenant of redemption or the pactum salutis is really thoroughly integrated Mm -hmm. into Reformed covenant theology. So it's not an Mm add-on as much as it is an integral part helping to explain both the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Yeah, you know, this is one of the most important things, I think, at least historically. In the 20th century, you had a number of historians claiming, for example, that, oh, the doctrine of election was a bald and abstract choice, supposedly, according to Reformed theologians. But yet, as you mentioned before, the covenant of redemption, in some respects, was like the packaging in which all of these other doctrines come. So that when you talk about election, it's in relationship to the covenant of redemption and Christ's election as covenant surety. When you talk about Christ as mediator, he's the Christ and we have been predestined in Christ. So they would connect election with the covenant of redemption in that respect. And then as you said too, you had some theologians such as Johannes Coxeus or more recently Gerhardus Voss and I believe even Hermann Bovink who said that in the covenant of redemption, you had the mirror of the covenant of redemption in the covenant of works where you see to a certain extent what Christ's work was supposed to be like is mirrored in Adam's work in the garden albeit a failed work. And then what happens is they say that the covenant of redemption is the anchor or eternal foundation for the covenant of grace in history. So yeah, it's a complete package and it wraps up so many different elements and ties them nice and neatly up with the bow, if you will, of the doctrine of the covenant. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Sometimes people ask, is the covenant of redemption a covenant of works or a covenant of grace? And I like to say it's both. Mm. It's a covenant of works for the Son, mm-hmm. and it's a covenant of grace for us. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And so we don't have to choose between those two things. And as we'll see here in a moment, there was some pretty radical surgery performed mm-hmm. on covenant theology in the in the 20th century. We might even call it amputation. Right. If you have a three-legged stool, two of these legs were cut off. Right, right. yeah. We lost the covenant of works, yep. which made it harder to understand the covenant of grace. And then behind that, we lost the covenant of redemption right. as the sort of conceptual foundation. So in the 18th century, mm-hmm. a number of things happened. For example, you write of a, quote, dense cloud of ambiguity, close quote, rolling over Jonathan Edwards' doctrine of justification. Mm-hmm. And that 
this dense cloud was related to his view of the Pactum Salutis and his rejection of faith as the, again, quoting, instrumental cause, close quote, of justification. So this might surprise the listener and also ditto for his doctrine that justification was completed at the judgment. That also might surprise the listener. Mm -hmm. And I understand that by mentioning Edwards, I've opened a huge can of worms, (laughs) but it's in the book. So we're talking to John Fesco about two books, not one, but two books he's published just now on the doctrine of the covenant of redemption. And this is part one of a two-part episode discussing this doctrine and this episode on the history of the doctrine. You know, you see in the 17th century people affirming the covenant of redemption. In the 18th century, you begin to see some drop-off, but you do still see theologians affirming the doctrine. And one of those is Edwards. Edwards has a miscellany, which was a collection of his miscellaneous theological observations, and I think he's got over a thousand of them in the Yale edition of Edwards' works. But he has an entire miscellany devoted to the covenant of redemption, and he talks about Christ's appointment as the mediator and all these various things. So from that vantage point, he affirms some very traditional things. But as you quoted from the book, I talk about a dense cloud of ambiguity rolling over his doctrine, because at a certain level, you read his treatise on justification, and it seems fairly benign, fairly traditional garden variety. But then at certain points, he begins to say some things that simply you don't find Reformed theologians historically saying. And one of them, for example, is the denial of the instrumental role of faith in justification. He talks about justification by faith, and when he talks about faith, he talks about faith being a morally fit cause of justification, but not an instrumental cause. And he uses some slightly different categories, and that he talks about moral fitness and natural fitness. Moral fitness is when something is morally good, so that it's good that I help an old lady cross the street, and that's morally helpful. Or appropriate. Or appropriate, yeah, that's good. Versus naturally fit, so that, for example, a nut and a bolt naturally go together. There's no kind of moral evaluation of it. They just naturally fit. So he'll talk about faith being a naturally fit component of justification, but not the instrumental cause. Now, the reasons are complex, and I can't get into all the details here, so I'll just encourage people to get a copy of the book, but it's the idea that there were changes in the philosophical scenes and assumptions of 18th century theologians where they rejected all kinds of forms of causality, and the only type of causality they were left with was efficient causality. In other words, agents, whether it's God as agent or human beings as agent, and they didn't want to talk about instrumental causes, final causes, or formal causes of these different types of forms of causality. And so he says it's a naturally fit cause or a naturally fit component of justification, but not an instrumental cause. And so that's the first big divergence from the Reformed tradition. Secondly is when he goes to define faith, he has what I describe as a very disorganized, fulsome definition of faith, where he says faith reacts in one way to the threatenings of the law, it reacts another way to the promises, but he also says at the core of faith is love. And that, I think, is a real problematic element if we're talking about whether it's scripturally as to how the scriptures talk about the relationship between faith and justification and historically how the tradition has historically discussed these things. And what's a peculiar oddity of this is that he appeals to what scholars identify as William Sherlock as the basis of coming up with this definition. Sherlock was a huge critic of John Owen and was really essentially more or less a Pelagian. And he said, you know, he wanted to put love at the very definition of faith. There's a curious, marginal, 
note by Jonathan Edwards Jr. that the Yale edition captures. And he basically says, I know that Reformed theologians have certain objections to incorporating love into the definition of faith, but I really don't see what the problem is. Yes, something to that effect. (laughs) And the problem is that the medieval church had taught that faith becomes what it is, Mm -hmm. right, as it comes to fruition. They said faith is formed Mm -hmm. by love. It becomes a reality, Mm -hmm. which was code for you're justified through sanctification. Right. And so as Edwards begins toying with incorporating love back Mm -hmm. into the definition of faith Mm -hmm. in the act of justification— you have at least a possibility of going back to the old medieval definition and sort of bypassing the Reformation. So at least, judging by the literature, this is an an ambiguous place in Edwards because there's a great body Mm -hmm. of literature on both sides, really. A lot of lit trying to explain, well, no, Edwards really was orthodox, and if we just Mm -hmm. understood him properly, we would see that. And there are treatises that are much longer than anything Edwards wrote, Mm -hmm. right, trying to defend Edwards. And then there's this persistent drumbeat of literature on the other side, Mm -hmm. starting with an article by Schaefer in the early 50s, Mm -hmm. which sometimes gets overlooked, Mm -hmm. I think, Mm -hmm. doesn't always get accounted for, raising questions, and that question just keeps coming up. So the listener needs to be aware that Edwards is a complicated figure and can't simply be accepted or received as sort of the baseline for what it is to be reformed. Right. No, I think you're absolutely right on that, and that the diametrically opposed literature on the subject should at least clue us into the idea that there's no division as far as where Turretin stands, for example, on these things. They recognize him as, you know, as being classically reformed. And Owen and Witsius exactly. and Wallabius and Polanus, yeah. and you could just go through the right. Reformed Orthodox in the 17th century, yeah. and in even in some of them, most of them in the 18th century, and then back into the 16th century, right. and the testimony is very consistent and very mm-hmm. clear. Yeah. But when you get to Edwards, yeah. at least it's ambiguous. At a minimum, yeah. And there are other problematic elements. As you mentioned, for example, he says that justification is not completed until faith issues forth in good works. And I want to say, well, wow, that's very different from what you see in the Reformation. That's certainly not anything we confess, right? No, not at all. Heidelberg 60, how are you right with God? Only by true faith. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And so we want to say, just so the listener is not at all confused, mm-hmm. that when a person trusts Christ, he is justified. Right. And that's not going to change. Right. And it's final, and you're just as justified now as you will be when you die. That's right. But— There are those, and potentially going back to Edwards, Mm -hmm. who want to stretch this out into two stages, which, of course, then puts us back, in some ways, in the medieval theology, right, of beginning, initiating justification, and then consummating or completing justification. But that's not a way that our writers typically have spoken. Is that fair? No, I think that's absolutely fair. I think the classic tradition you see embodied, say, as you said, in the Heidelberg or in Westminster Standards that says that justification is an act, whereas very much so for Edwards, it's a process. And right. I think that that's— now, Say that again. In the Westminster Confession, Chapter 11, mm-hmm. or Westminster Shorter Catechism, right. justification is a what? It's an act. It's a one-time, completed all in the first go. As soon as it happens, it's done. Whereas for Edwards— It's a process, and it's a lifelong process. And Scripture does say, having therefore been justified. Correct, yeah. Or in Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation, or you could read that, there is now justification for those who are in Christ Jesus, and says that the law cannot condemn us because of it. So the process isn't 
initiated relative to our righteousness with God. It is completed. All right. All right well, we have another episode and we'll gather together to talk more about the theology of all of this. But let's draw this interesting discussion to a close for now by thinking about this. Again, as the listener is sort of wrestling through this and thinking about what might be some new ideas and things that he hasn't heard before, what's the value of this personally, spiritually, sure. as one thinks about his faith, his assurance, and all of that relative to the covenant of redemption? Yeah, I think that the way that a lot of the 17th century theologians historically talked about this, and it's a way that I found it very pastorally and personally beneficial to me, is that they talked about the covenant of redemption as that eternal, unmovable anchor, that because the word of the triune God is absolutely binding and immutable, indefectible, and unchanging, that when Christ says, I will do the work— he comes and does it. When the Father gives him the work and it says, if you do this, then I will give you this reward, that he does it so that there's nothing that can move this firm foundation for our redemption. So that when you get faced with doubts, when you're plagued with guilt, when you worry about whether or not you may be good enough, you can say, I'm not good enough. But Christ is, and Christ has given his word, and as has the Father, and as has the Spirit in bringing about this redemption to save me and to save his church. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.